This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and the Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. It has been a long, hot summer for the Philadelphia Police Department. In June, a report by the Plainview Project revealed that hundreds of Philly police officers had posted thousands of public Facebook posts that expressed endorsements of violence and that were tinged with racism, xenophobia, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and Islamophobia. In July, Mayor James Kenney announced that the city would limit information that is publicly available from the department's database of civilian complaints about police behavior. This month, Philly police officers found themselves in an hours-long standoff with a person who was armed and firing at officers from a townhouse, an event that drew national attention, including from presidential candidates, and exposed raw feelings about how people in that neighborhood are policed and what types of violence are given the most attention by the media and public officials. And less than a week later, Philadelphia Police Commissioner Richard Ross abruptly resigned amid accusations that he had mishandled complaints of sexual harassment, gender discrimination, and racial discrimination in the department. With all of that happening, I sat down to talk with Elder Melanie DeBose, who is a member of the Board of Directors of Power and the co-chair of Power's Live Free campaign. Power is an interfaith social justice organization with chapters in Philadelphia, the greater Philadelphia area, the Lehigh Valley, and South Central Pennsylvania. Power's Live Free campaign is the organization's project to stop police violence and end mass incarceration. This is an in-depth conversation that I think you will find very informative, not only for people living in Philadelphia, but also for anyone who cares about police accountability. Well, Elder DeBose, thanks for taking the time to talk with me and, and to talk about the work of Power and the Live Free team. We are recording this uh, conversation in your home church in North Philadelphia. I wonder if you can tell me about your church and the people you serve. Um, what is the work of your church and what's daily life like here? So um, thank you for this opportunity. I am Elder Melanie DeBose, and I am signed here in a twofold capacity. I am pastor of Evangel Chapel which is our church entity, but it, like everything we do here, operates under our corporate entity, which is Children's Mission Incorporated. Children's Mission has existed in this North Philadelphia community since 1956, and I have been a part of it since 1969. Yes, that's 50 years. <laughs> Some of the things that we are involved in now, I like to address it as kind of a fourfold ministry. The first of which is discipleship, and we are a faith-based entity, so we are always um, taking opportunities to teach and preach the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Our second component is, and that's our spiritual development component, our second component is food services, and we activate our food services ministry through both the distribution of dry goods through our pantry and with hot meals through our soup kitchen. Our pantry operates on a monthly basis where we provide dry goods, canned goods, meats, produce, and other things for our community. Once a month, we primarily, 80% of our client base is seniors, and we're operating in a low poverty community. 
you already know that Philadelphia has a 26% poverty rate, but the members of our community live in deep poverty. So if you look at the statistics of that, um, that means that more of them are without jobs, more of them are without um, a living wage or even an income at all. And many of them live in substandard housing. We are surrounded by substandard schools, Philadelphia in general, but our community in particular has substandard schools and um, deep poverty, all of those things, the lack of education, the lack of available resources, all of those go hand in hand to exacerbate the issues of poverty. In addition to our food services ministry, we offer education services through Children's Mission. And that looks like the following. Throughout the summer, we offer a free of charge seven week summer day camp. And we provide day camp services from eight to four every day, Monday through Friday for seven weeks, the, the end of June until the middle of August. And we use that time to really strengthen the educational core of our community. We serve children and their families from pre-K to the eighth grade. And we really have a strong emphasis on educational development in the morning and then in the afternoons. We give a variety of clubs that we hope would engender a level of interest in our young people that would hopefully have them perhaps target something that they might want to do in a career. So we have photography classes, karate classes, science club, we have a chess club, and a number of things to just stimulate interest and growth to um, address issues of anger management, to address issues of, of personal apathy, and to not only strengthen our campers, but also to strengthen the family unit as a whole. I would say that during our food services ministry, we also offer health care services. So we have partnered with Temple University and an organization called Bubashi Blacks, educating blacks about sexual health issues. And Bubashi comes in once a month and offers uh, HIV screening and um, hepatitis C screening. Temple University comes in through their nursing program and through their um, pharmacy program and they offer screenings. They guide our clients through examining their medications and giving them a little information about what kind of questions to ask their physicians and how to better manage their medication care. And then lastly, we take blood pressure screenings, we do diabetes training, and we are available to answer any questions that they may have without breaching the, um, the processes that they have or the engagement that they have with their doctors. That takes care of our education services, our food services, the last, uh, in our, in our dis discipleship development. The last part of our ministry that is very vibrant in this season is our criminal justice reform services. Children's Mission has been working with the chief public defender, Keir Bradford Gray, and her team to develop a hub 
a participatory defense hub. And that is a process that we'll talk about further that helps our citizens, particularly black and brown citizens who overwhelmingly occupy many of the incarcerated spaces in our city. It helps them on the front end of the adjudication process to address the issues that they have to experience once arrested or once they come in contact with the criminal justice system. So the participatory defense hub, we're in the process of training members of the community and members of the family on how to navigate through the criminal justice process. We are learning through the Defenders Association that an individual from the time of arrest to the time that the adjudication process is finished, that they have to, they have to appear in court as much as 18 times. So um, our Chief Public Defender Gray has been providing Know Your Systems training and we're using the understanding of the system and the understanding of the processes to develop these participatory defense hub to help our citizens navigate through those. And it is a complicated system, and we know from the data that it has um, a disproportionate impact on folks um, from this community uh, and similar communities in Philadelphia. But on top of all that work, you're also a board member of POWER, and the co-chair of POWER's Live Free campaign. And the mission of that campaign is to end police violence and mass incarceration. And there's one part of the, the campaign strategy statement that particularly stuck out for me. It says, quote, while Live Free attempts to influence federal and state policies wherever possible, its primary focus is on ensuring that prosecutors, police chiefs, mayors, city council members, and other elected officials are held accountable as allies and not obstacles to criminal justice reform. And that's the end of the quote. What does that mean for the work that you're doing? How does Live Free go about holding public officials accountable to be allies and not obstacles? So Live Free has been very intentional, first of all, developing relationships with our elected officials. Sometimes that relationship can be established before they are elected while they're on the campaign trail and sometimes that relationship can be established afterwards. But whenever that relationship is established, we are intentional about reminding them that they work for and on behalf of the citizens of Philadelphia. So what that looks like is, if I may begin with the mayor, for example, in his position, his responsibility is to really look out for the entire citizenry of Philadelphia and it has been our experience that in these most marginalized communities a lot of the injustices that have been railed against the citizens of Philadelphia are really targeting the most marginalized citizens so the war on poverty is not in our in our estimation it is not addressing the issues of poverty, mm -hmm. but is bringing a further indictment against those who are poor. So we have been very intentional about reminding city officials that their responsibility is to look out for all 
of the citizens of Philadelphia and not just those who um, have a certain look, have a certain lifestyle, and have certain economic capabilities that would be different from other citizens. So speaking of public officials, we are recording this on August 21st, and yesterday the news broke that Philadelphia Police Commissioner Richard Ross uh, resigned uh, abruptly and unexpectedly. Um, the reasoning is that he is accused of mishandling um, accusations of sexual harassment, gender discrimination, and racial discrimination in the department. I know we're in the first 24 hours since this news broke, but what was your reaction when you heard that? Shock and disappointment was my first reaction. And then I began to wonder what is really behind this, my perception of it. And I will say that Power and some of our other allies have had extensive meetings and conversations with Commissioner Ross. And we found him, I have found him to be a fair and reasonable leader. I have found him to be willing to listen. Um, we have talked extensively about the issues that rest on the shoulders of the black and brown communities. And um, we have found him to be willing to listen. So I was very shocked and disappointed at the news of his resignation last night. And then to find this morning that there are more layers to it, I am certain that there will be more to this situation that meets the eye. My gut instinct tells me that he's probably a scapegoat because one of the charges railed against him was that his presence was adversely impacting the culture of the Philadelphia Police Department. And while leadership has a certain responsibility, I don't believe that the culture, good, bad, or indifferent, should rest squarely on his shoulders. As an outsider, so I'm from Harrisburg, um, but observing what's ha what happens in Philadelphia and how things are reported, it does seem like that culture issue is probably a lot bigger than, than one person. Um, how would you summarize, how would you describe uh, Commissioner Ross's time in that position? I think that like with every elected position, one inherits the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm -hmm. Some of the ugly was, has been the absorbent number of stops and frisks that exists in the city. Not just stops and frisks, but unconstitutional stops and frisks. And we were very, we as activists and power, we were very um, firm with the mayor who ran on a platform of ending stop and frisk. And then uh, once elected, we had established that we would have him to meet with us within the first 100 days mm -hmm. of his tenure. And it was within those 100 days that he denounced even understanding what stop and frisk was. And in this particular town hall meeting, uh, Commissioner Ross was present and 
I remember watching him and seeing how powerless he seemed to have felt over the situation of really ending stop and frisk. But I have to go on record as, as saying and commending him for the work he did around it. He acknowledged that stop and frisk is one of the tools in a police officer's toolbox but or tool bag, but he implemented a number of procedures that would elevate the level of accountability for a police officer implementing that tool. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? If you stop and frisk an individual, you have to write a full report as to why, what was the expectation, what was the reasonableness of this stop and frisk, and what were the results. And for that reason, the stops and frisks have decreased by about 50%. However, <laughs> the 50% that still remain is disproportionately targeting black and brown citizens just like it did when it was in its full, um, full processes. Mm -hmm. And as you know, there, the city is under a consent decree as a result of an ACLU lawsuit uh, it's been eight years now of enforcing that consent decree, and, and as you said, we, we have these annual reports that are showing that the number of stops are dropping, the percentage that are without cause are dropping, but we're still talking about thousands of people um, every year who are being stopped um, without cause, and the racial disparities show that the, um, the less people of color in a neighborhood, the greater the disparity in stops. Um, so with that in mind, what, and I know power has been right at the front, um, advocating with city officials to, to end this. Um, what is, what's power up to now? Like, where do things stand and, and, uh, wh what's your feeling about the status of that work? So power has remained at the table and we have a number of allies that are at the table as well. So I think we have a two-pronged approach. We are still working and we are using the statistics from the ACLU and other sources and from um, the Defenders Association to really address the impracticality and the, the unconstitutionality of the stop and frisk process that they have been engaged in for so long. So while we're really addressing to get those cut down and stopped, we're also developing what our chief public defender, Keir Bradford Gray, calls the uh, participatory defense process. Mm -hmm. And that process gets family members and citizens engaged so that in the event of an unlawful stop or an illegal arrest or in the event that some of our black and brown citizens, and this is not exclusive to black and brown, but since it is happening most often, most often with black and brown citizens, um, when they are arrested and placed in incarceration, incarcerated spaces, the participatory defense process is designed to get the family and members of the community engaged on the front end for example, my grandson gets arrested, 
everybody knows grandson is a good guy. I'm not just biased. I'm telling the truth. <laughs> and when he gets arrested, because he reacted to the way he was stopped and frisked, because a lot of times um, young men have testified that when a police officer goes and puts their hand in his pocket, they're not just looking for weapons or contraband. Mm -hmm. They're invading their privacy right. in a most egregious way. So when a young man's privacy is invaded and he reacts by flailing his arms and saying, yo, man, what are you doing? Then now he's been charged with resistant arrest. Right. If while he flails his arms, he inadvertently hits the officer, he's now being charged with assault of an officer. So part of the participatory defense process is to stand on the front end of the adjudication process and let the courts know that the individual that you see on this uh, rap sheet or this charge in this jacket is not the individual that we know. There's a conflict of interest between what is being reported by the police and who this young man or young woman really is. So this participatory defense process is really catching hold around the city. There are four very active hubs right now and there are four to six that are being developed in various parts of the city and it's a it's a an operation whereby on a weekly basis our doors are open to families and friends and members of the community who will come in and say I have a situation this young man this young woman has been arrested they're being kept they're being retained we don't know what is going on we need help and so the participatory defense hub is positioned to get the help that is needed. And we're learning how to do that through the Know Your Systems training offered by um, the Defenders Association. And the Know Your Systems training is part of those hubs? Like that's what's happening when people walk in? It's kind of like a Know Your Rights or a Ask a Lawyer kind of, kind of um, clinic? Absolutely. The, part of the Know Your Systems training is the first leg of developing the Participatory Defense Hub because um, the Defenders Association started with helping people to be aware of their rights. What is it to have been arrested and what happens in the course of things? Because um, young men and young women were being, uh, warrants were being put out on them. They're trying to work. They're trying to engage with their families. Some of them are in school. And we were trained in this process that from the time of arrest, you could conceivably have to go to court 18 times. Mm -hmm. That interrupts your schooling. That interrupts your job. That potentially gets you fired. And so a lot of young people were um, having to, to make the decision, do I go to this court and listen to hear them say the case is being continued or do I go to work? And for the sake of their own survival, sometimes they would go to work. And so now their charges are being exacerbated because there's a no-show and then there's a bench warrant. And so the participatory defense trains individuals in their processes if they're incarcerated and can't make 
um, bail, which a lot of times is less than a few thousand dollars, but it's a lot more than an individual has mm -hmm. or their family. So this, this, um, this hub comes to their aid. There are other agencies that will get moms out of jail during, um, particularly during the Mother's Day season and get dads out of jail, especially during Father's Day and you know other times of the year. But this hub is designed to really stand in the gap and make sure that the injustices in the criminal justice system are being um, addressed and our citizens know that they're not standing alone. So the other news from this past week was the standoff um, in North Philadelphia between a young man in a home and, and the Philadelphia police. They had come there to serve a warrant, um, and it turned into a multi-hour standoff um, with a lot of gunfire. Fortunately, no one was killed, um, and no one was seriously injured. You know, from what I have read and heard about this incident, it seems like a person's reaction to it like so many things in the public realm, is heavily influenced by their own experience. And it seems that there are a lot of people who understandably feel like they are over-policed in that community, that violence in this and other communities is accepted by policymakers and the press, and that this particular incident only got this type of attention because police were on the receiving end of the gunfire. I've seen several stories from Philadelphia Inquirer and, and WHYY um, chronicling reaction from people in the community. Um, as someone who ministers to folks in this community and who works on both gun violence and police violence, what do you think people need to hear about that incident and the issues surrounding it that they're not hearing in the press? So that incident was terribly unfortunate. First of all, there should not have been drug sales out of that house. There should not have been the possession of weapons in that house. But that incident was not discovered that day. Mm -hmm. So whether or not the police handled it masterfully, I don't know. I have my I have my questions about the handling of the entire incident. It is my experience that by the time a raid happens, they have observed and investigated that home for perhaps weeks or months. Mm. It has also come out that this individual was served the day before. So during the incident, the nine-hour standoff, I believe it was nine hours, there were a lot of mixed messages that were communicated across the airwaves, television, radio. And some of those mixed messages were the fact that there were police officers on the second floor. How did they get there? Why were they there? Why didn't they get out? the fact that hostages, they didn't call them hostages, they called them prisoners mm. on the second floor with these officers. What established them as prisoners? What, 
I didn't understand that at all. And I'm not supposed to understand everything, but there were just mixed messages. The most incredible part of it for me was I have to relate to some of the early days of our Live Free organization in power. And at our Live Free table, it's a mixed table. It's economically mixed, it's racially mixed, and not so much uh, by age. These are older citizens of Philadelphia who are concerned about the criminal justice system. But one day, we asked the question of the individuals at the table who were in the moment predominantly white. We asked, if you were to call the police, how long does it take to get a response in your community? Many of them responded that the police come right away. So I sat there in silence contemplating whether or not I wanted to share my truth. And some of them noticing me sitting in silence said, well, Pastor Melanie, well, how long does it take for a police officer to come to your community? And I explained to them that <laughs> it could take forever mm. unless you say, officer down. Mm. And if you say, officer down, the police appear like genies. Mm -hmm. And I understand the importance of the camaraderie and the brotherhood and looking out for one another. But what we as black and brown citizens want is for that same level of importance to our emergency to be to be placed on our emergency as it is when a police officer is in trouble and I hate to use the cliche I have officers in my family I have police officers who are friends I hate to sound cliche with that but I do and I am concerned about their safety as I am about everyone else's but we just don't get the kind of response as expeditiously in our black community unless we declare that there's an officer down. So my reaction to the whole thing, it should have never played out that way. And the way it played out with every officer in the entire city that was on duty that time appearing there and leaving their duty stations unattended. <laughs> I thought that was just um, perhaps an overreaction. And I thought it also interesting that 30 officers by 8 o'clock that evening were sitting on a bus because they were being, being questioned for having discharged their firearms. What were they shooting at? Who were they shooting at? And, and the individual who was in the home, in the house, is he the only person being indicted for shooting in a, in a crowded neighborhood where daycare centers were in earshot or eyeshot of the whole incident? 
I have mixed emotions about it, clearly. Mm -hmm. There was a columnist uh, for the Philadelphia Inquirer who um, wrote about how we mistakenly use that phrase, everyday gun violence, and, and she acknowledged that she has used that phrase um, too casually. Um, and I, I, it seems like that's the point you're getting at, that um, when it affects, when the violence affects folks in the community who just live here, um, it doesn't get nearly the priority or attention um, as it does when uh, it's the, the gunshots are at officers. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier the culture of the department and how that is bigger than one person. Earlier this summer, there was a report, an investigative report from the Plainview Project showing that hundreds of Philadelphia police officers had posted publicly on Facebook posts that were advocating violence and that were racist, misogynist, homophobic, transphobic, uh, Islamophobic. And in response, seven officers have resigned, 13 have been fired, although we, last I knew we don't know if there's overlap between those seven and those 13. Um, and several dozen have been relegated to desk duty. When you heard that, that, that these posts existed, what was your reaction? Well, <clears throat> the results of the Plainview Project didn't come as a surprise to me because we as black and brown people are witnesses to the racism every day in the Philadelphia Police Department, in the city, in the country, in the nation. So there was no surprise. What was perhaps most interesting was the reality that these officers would be brazen enough to be able to be identified through their posts. The police department does have a social media policy. It is grossly outdated because the policy that is attached to their contract and their contractual behavior, it references the use of blackberries. <laughs> so blackberries went out right after button toe shoes. <laughs> so to have a policy around social media that references the use of blackberries, that would probably predate Instagram. It would probably predate the level of use of Facebook. Mm -hmm. And it would predate a lot of the social media in which we are engaged today. So the reality of the post did not surprise me. What did eventually come as a, as a grave surprise to me, now agencies have taken great pains to identify and to distinguish the difference between freedom of speech and indictable rhetoric. Mm -hmm. So we were given examples by the former police commissioner, our coalition group, whereby they went through every individual's post. And for example, if an individual officer had 24 posts, they may have found that only two of those posts out of the 24 were indictable offenses. Mm. And if two of those posts were indictable offenses, the next thing that they had to do was measure it 
against the officer's previous behavior. Mm. This is why when we had 328 officers engaged or identified by this Plainview project, we only came up with the first six. In the beginning, there were seven or, or 15, and then 15, and then we found that 72 officers had been put on desk duty, and my reaction was, well, that's nice. That'll Ooh. give them more access to the computer. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. So that was um, a little bit of a chuckle, but what we discovered by the um, former commissioner's own words was that as, as incensed as he and the mayor purported to be, the police commissioner was powerless to immediately enact firing. Mm -hmm. And what he explained to us was that the firing belongs to the captain. And so he had the wherewithal and the power to make recommendations around the, the dismissal or the um, placing on administrative duty. He had the wherewithal to make those recommendations, but the final word, the final um, uh, decision did not rest with him. So to turn around this week, or yesterday and hold the culture of the entire police department at his feet when his jurisdiction is so limited, I'm still a little befuddled about that. Yeah, this, the U.S. Supreme Court has said that public employees um, do not have protections in their speech if it affects their job. Now, when I was reading one of the first reports about the 13 who were going to be fired, it suggested that they were fired because they were advocating violence. And I would argue that that maybe that's a relatively low bar, that if you're showing biased um, views about people based on who they are, whether that's their race or their religion, sexual orientation, um, that also indicates that you probably cannot serve your community. Right. Do you think more needs to be done? Absolutely, because the citizens that we were able to converse with had reactions like, well, if I'm being stopped by an officer, my level of angst or trepidation is, is increased exponentially because some of the individuals in our faith-based organization power are um, of, of the Muslim faith, of the uh, Jewish um, religion, and I don't think Jews were identified in this particular series of of um, of racial slurs, but in, and in the uh, LBGTQ community, many thought, "What if I am targeted specifically for one of those reasons by one of those officers?" So the the fear and the trepidation of even being stopped has increased exponentially and so the public questions the people that are, are paid to protect and defend have become the enemy and I can't help but wonder these officers merely did not know how to use their privacy settings because it was only posts that were publicly available 
they did not hide them but if you, the way you know the way Facebook operates you can you can show posts only to your friends and these posts did not did not collect any of those like they, they were not looking at posts that were only viewable by the individual's friends these were only posts that were publicly viewable so it does make me wonder then what is being said behind the privacy walls yeah, you said that, you suggested that these officers did not know how to. <laughs> My um, reaction is that they did not care to. That's a good point. Because I'm sure that after several uses of Facebook, you know how. But number one, in this political climate, that kind of rhetoric is being um, promulgated from the highest office in the land. Mm -hmm. And so it is of no surprise in any state, in any city, in any jurisdiction, that individuals would feel free in spewing that kind of rhetoric and hatred because, as I said, it is, um, it is a non-example from the highest office in the land. So no, it's not that they didn't know how, they didn't care to, they didn't think they needed to. Mm -hmm. And so our question from the beginning was, well, if these were brazen enough to do this indiscriminately, what about those who have a little more savvy with their hatred, mm -hmm. with their rhetoric, and they are doing it in privacy settings? We're definitely in a heightened state of awareness and it behooves black and brown people to be on a state of perpetual alert like we've been all of our all of our days mm -hmm. but even more so now in a time that things should have been got getting better there's one last piece of news from this summer about the philadelphia police i want to ask you about and that is uh, from last month mayor kenny announced that the database that holds civilian complaints about police misconduct would be further restricted from public view. Now, previously, the public could see the initials of the officers and the person involved and details about the complaint. Now, the public will not see any initials, and details about the complaints will be summarized. So Billy Penn published an example. Um, they, they published a, a complaint that previously had details about a man being bumped off of his bicycle uh, by plainclothes police officers in a car. That complaint was narrowed down to only say, quote, according to the complainant, they were physically abused by officers assigned to the 17th district, close quote. That does not tell much of anything about what is in that complaint. So what is Mayor Kenny getting wrong here? Why is it critical for the public to see the information that is in that database? You've asked another question that rung a bell. Uh -huh. What is Mayor Kenny getting wrong here? Mayor Kenny is very intentional about celebrating his biases through his work. He conveniently, I, I can't believe that that just became an issue. Mm -hmm. He conveniently identified that level of opaqueness or that absence of transparency after he won the primaries. So I believe that once again that would be an abuse of power 
because if he were serious about protecting the citizens of Philadelphia as a whole, not merely protecting the police officers or not merely protecting council persons who are out of order, not merely looking out for his best interests or the best interests of his friends, then he would be the first example of transparency and he would certainly demand transparency of the, the police officers. It has been said that if you want to know who runs the city, find out who is the head of the Fraternal Order of Police. Mm. And to my chagrin, a lot of the power in this city rests in the hands of the FOP. And I believe that more than an advocate for the people, Mayor Kenney seems to portray himself as a puppet to the FOP. So there will be people listening to this who are not from Philadelphia, but who may have an interest in police accountability in their own cities, in their own towns. What is your advice for folks in other cities? What lessons have you learned doing this work in Philadelphia? I know you're particularly interested uh, in the impact of police contracts. Yes, that issue of the contract, when the option of striking was taken off the table, and I don't know when that happened for police officers. While I find it to be important because if police officers strike, then it, place, it places the city very much in harm's way. But when that option of striking was taken off the table, it gave carte blanche through the arbitration process. And one reality that I know about human nature is you can't give freedoms and liberties to people who don't know how to handle freedoms and liberties. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that there has been a substantial amount of abuse with the um, arbitration process for example, the arbitration process is a state-mandated process, but the local officers get to choose who the arbitrators will be. So in my estimation, you get to select judge and jury. And nine times out of 10, the results of the arbitration lands in the favor of the police officers. So the citizens have a no-win situation. So power and some of our allies are really pressing to have a seat at the table, to be able to give voice to the stipulations in the contract, to make sure that we're not licensing and paying people to abuse citizens who have a hue or a religious or a lifestyle choice with which they do not agree. We don't want to give them license to abuse those citizens. 
we need to uphold their responsibility to be fair and honest in the execution of their duties. And we are demanding in this hour a seat at the table to be able to take part in the um, arbitration process. We are also making demands of the elected officials that the Police Action Commission, under the direction of Hans Minos, have a substantial increase in their budget. Mm -hmm. One, they need to be a part of the um, investigatory process. It needs to include citizens, and it, there needs to be the license to do an in-depth uh, evaluation of situations where police are found being out of order, like shooting citizens who are trying to leave the scene um, in the back. Um, we're demanding that resources be appropriated to the um, Police Action Commission. I think that's what it's, the PAC is called. And that that organization be given teeth. And one way to give it teeth is to finance it properly and to allow citizens to be a part of investigations. We have, in every jurisdiction, there's the um, internal affairs but we have learned over years that you can't trust the police to police themselves. And so citizens, if we're paying your salary and if we're responsible for your, 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 your maintenance, then we should have a voice in how you conduct yourselves. So if you would give advice to people in other cities, it sounds like pay attention to the contract and other infrastructure for accountability because it seems like the contract in particular is where that infrastructure for accountability lies. Absolutely. Let me give you another example. We have, for the last several years, we have been rolling out the use of body cams in their contract, they have so much leverage as to how to use those body cameras. And all of them, all of that leverage falls in the favor of the police officer. For example, they can have a shooting and then they say, oh, I forgot to turn it on. Why do you have it if you turned it off? And the excuse is, well, we have to have a way to store all of that data. Find a way. The next thing is, in their contract, if they're wearing a body cam and they have a, an incident, they have been given the permission to view the footage before they write the report. Mm -hmm. Well, that's... That's the most biased and, 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 and one-sided approach to anything. Where is the integrity involved in writing the report? And, and the, the police officers can, can view it, but it's not up for public scrutiny. A lot has to change. So I would say to people in other cities, make sure that you are closely scrutinizing what kind of 
leverage you're giving the officers. It is important that they protect and defend, but they have to protect and defend the citizens at a, as a whole, not just the, own, the uh, individuals, men and women in blue, which have to also be protected and defended, but there is a bias that exists. It is not implicit, it's explicit, it's just as plain as the nose on one's face, and the citizens have to be aware the city councils around the nation, you have to be aware about how much leverage you give police officers. Um, somebody said if they had to pay for bullets, they wouldn't expend so many. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Someone said that you should never be able to base your defense on prior knowledge. There should be absolute transparency when it comes to who did what. And if you're operating in integrity, you should have nothing to hide. You should be willing um, to be as, as transparent as possible. Well, Elder DeBose, I can speak for everyone at the ACLU of Pennsylvania that we are extremely grateful for all the work that Power is doing. Uh, the work is extremely important, and thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate all of your insights. That's Elder Melanie DuBose of the Board of Directors of POWER. You can learn more about POWER at powerinterfaith.org. They are also on Facebook and Twitter with the handle at powerinterfaith. You'll also find links to some of the issues we discussed in the show notes. That brings episode 29 to a close. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover, the host, writer, and director of this podcast. Until next time, be free.